You're listening to In My Father's House with our pastor and teacher, Mike Fenizio, Senior Pastor of Harvest Christian Fellowship in New York City, New York. In my Father's house, there's a place for me. In my Father's house, where I long to be, oh, my heart will not be troubled. I remember what you said. So listen, there's only one God. There's not the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. Okay? So there's only one. He is a God of love. He is a God of mercy. But then also, He is a God of justice. And He shall bring judgment upon the ungodly. Listen, if God didn't bring judgment upon sin, upon the unrighteous, God would not be a holy God. God gave harsh commands to his people as they began taking the promised land back from their enemies. And some people have trouble reconciling these commands with the living God. Yet, as Pastor Mike explains today, despite these severe commands, God is still a loving and merciful God. He sees things and understands things that people simply can't comprehend. He knows what could ultimately destroy his people. He knows there's no compromise or peace with the enemy. Now, here's Pastor Mike in the book of 1 Samuel chapter 15 as he begins his message, Destroy Amalek. So let's go ahead and grab our Bibles, and will you turn with me where we left off last time? We're in 1 Samuel chapter 15, and we're going to begin by reading the first three verses of Scripture. And this message, the title is Destroy Amalek. Destroy Amalek. So 1 Samuel chapter 15, verses 1 through 3. Okay, verse 1. Samuel also said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, over Israel. Now, therefore, heed the words of the Lord. So, obviously, Samuel, the judge, went to Gibeah, that is where Saul was, to visit with him and to impart God's instructions. Verse 2, thus saith the Lord of hosts. So, this was the message that was delivered from Samuel to Saul. I will punish Amalek, or the Amalekites, for what he did to Israel, how he ambushed him on the way when he came up from Egypt. And I'll go into all of the details concerning this announcement that's recorded here first in verse 2. But that event that Samuel is referring to had taken place 400 years before this announcement that was given to Saul by Samuel. The point is, is that God does not forget, does he? And so really, he is going now to engage Saul 
and Israel's military in a holy war against the Amalekites. And then in verse 3, here's the instructions. Now go and attack Amalek, or the Amalekites, and utterly destroy all that they have. And do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, infant, wow, and nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. That is to make an example of them. So the time for God's long delayed how now come. And vengeance had come upon the Amalekites. As I mentioned now, this is a holy war that Saul is about to engage in. Okay, so what we have before us is a pretty radical request that has been given to Saul by Samuel. He's ordered now the utter destruction of the Amalekites. Now, I got to tell you something. Because of the severity of this commandment, some people actually have a problem with God. They actually believe that they're two different gods. That is the God of the New Testament and the God of the Old Testament. For example, the God of the New Testament is a very loving God and a very forgiving God. Whereas the God of the Old Testament is all about destroying everybody and beating everyone up, you know, over the head with a, with a bat, right? And so people have come to the wrong conclusion that there are actually two different gods. But listen, the Old Testament does not reveal to us that. In fact, the Old Testament reveals to us that God is a loving, patient, merciful, kind God. I mean, just think about the way that he treated Israel. How, how long-suffering he was with the nation of Israel. I mean, how many times did he bless Israel, provide for Israel? But then time and time again, they would turn their back upon their God, Jehovah, and they would go after these other gods. They would fall into idolatry. But nevertheless, God continued to be faithful to them and long-suffering. But then on the other hand, the New Testament reveals that the wrath of God shall be revealed in great measure upon a world that has rejected Jesus Christ. For example, Jesus himself said in Matthew's Gospel in chapter 24, in verse 21, if you want to turn there, you can, but I'll quote it for you. For then shall there be great tribulation, and he's referring to the seven years of tribulation at the end of the age, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. And then as God's judgment begins to be poured out during that particular period of time, if you quickly turn with me to the book of Revelation, in chapter 6, in verse 17, as God is pouring out his wrath upon a Christ-rejecting world, in Revelation chapter 6, in verses 15 and 16, we read there, And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and notice from the wrath of the lamb. And who's the lamb? The lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It is Jesus Christ. So this is the result of the cataclysmic judgments that God pours out upon a Christ-rejecting world. So listen, there's only one God. There's not the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. Okay? 
So there's only one. He is a God of love. He is a God of mercy. But then also, he is a God of justice. And he shall bring judgment upon the ungodly. Listen, if God didn't bring judgment upon sin, upon the unrighteous, God would not be a holy God. You know, more than anything else concerning the character of God, oftentimes, both in the Old and New Testament, God is referred to as a holy God. Well, God wouldn't be a holy God if he wasn't just in meeting out judgment upon those who have broken his commandments. Wouldn't that be true? And so anyway, let's go back now to those people who were to be obliterated. Let's talk about these Amalekites and why God is going to judge them. The Amalekites were probably the most vicious and vile people that have ever lived upon the face of the earth. And because of their practices, because of their lifestyles, the entire world was in danger of being infected by these people. They were a disease. And God, for the sake of humanity, ordered the complete extermination of these people. I want you to understand that these people were a cancer. Like, for example, just one of the practices during that time that we're reading about here, they would actually take their children and burn them as an offering. Could you imagine that? They would burn their own children upon an altar as a sacrifice unto their gods. So God had enough. Remember, it's 400 years. You know, talk about God being long-suffering. You know, God gave the Amalekites ample opportunity uh, to repent of their sins, but they never did. 400 years. So talk about God's long-suffering and God being patient. But now the time had come where God is going to bring judgment against these people. He was going to obliterate them. He was going to totally wipe them off of the face of the earth. And so here, according to chapter 15, God uses Israel as his instruments to bring judgment upon this wicked people. Okay, so what else do we know about the Amalekites? Well, we are first introduced to them in the book of Exodus in chapter 17. Verses 8 through 16. And so what do we read about them there? Well, verse 8. Now Amalek came, or the Amalekites came, and fought with Israel in Rephidim. And Moses said to Joshua, you're probably very familiar with this particular text of Scripture. When you were a child in Sunday school, you probably learned about this. Remember the, the war and the raising up of Moses' arms by his brother Aaron and her, who is one of the companions of Aaron and Moses. And every time they raised up his hands, Israel would prevail against the Amalekites in their fighting against them. And then when Moses got tired and he couldn't lift up his hands any longer and they went down, then the Amalekites would be victorious in the battle. You're familiar with this? It's usually a very familiar story that's uh, taught to children in Sunday school. Well, anyway, verse 9 And Moses said to Joshua, Choose us some men and go out, fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. And that rod represented God being with his people. Remember, that was the same rod that Moses used often in in standing before Pharaoh in Egypt. Remember? He would throw the rod down and it became a serpent. Remember, he took the rod and he parted the Red Sea and... So that was an instrument that actually represented God being with his people 
Israel. Verse 10, so Joshua did as Moses said to him, and he fought with Amalek, and Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And so it was when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands became heavy, so they took a stone and they put it under him, under Moses, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side, and his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. So Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this for a memorial in the book and recount it in the hearing of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called its name, The Lord is My Banner. And then in verse 16, and he said, Because the Lord has sworn, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Okay, now keep a marker here in chapter 17 of the book of Exodus, because we're going to come back to it in just a moment. But as I've already mentioned, this is the first record concerning the Amalekites in the Bible. Now, according to the book of Deuteronomy, in chapter 25, in verses 17 and 18, so in Deuteronomy chapter 25, in verses 17 and 18, we are told that the Amalekites attacked Israel from the rear as they were moving out of Egypt, a part of the Exodus, and they preyed upon the weak. They preyed upon the elderly, the sick, those who couldn't keep up with the rest of the company. Remember, it was a great company of people. It's been estimated that there was probably at least 3 million Jews who made the exodus out of Egypt, moving towards the land of promise. So they would prey upon those individuals who couldn't keep up with the rest of the group, who couldn't defend themselves. You know what this reminds me of? Up in Alaska, during a certain time of the year, the herds of caribou would actually migrate over the tundra, and packs of wolves would come behind, and they would prey upon the sickly of the caribou herd, those who were sick, those who could not defend themselves, those who could not keep up with the herd. And that's exactly what the Amalekites were doing with Israel. Well, anyway, also there in the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 25, God giving instruction to Moses as they were going into the land of Canaan, he reminded them and said, remember what Amalek did. After you settled in, I want you to go down and destroy Amalek. Now, let's go back to Exodus chapter 17 for a moment. There's something there that I find very interesting, and it's recorded for us in verse 16 of that text that we've just read. And notice there we are told, God said, there would be a war against Amalek or the Amalekites through every generation. So this announcement, the idea here is that you cannot make peace with Amalek. God's people would always be at war with Amalek. And this announcement here, I believe, as many other Bible teachers also believe, 
that there is a wider application, a wider meaning than what appears on the surface. And thus, many Bible teachers believe that in the Scripture, and you know this to be true, in many of the Old Testament Scriptures, we have what we refer to as types. So in this case, in the Scripture, Amalek becomes a type of the flesh. So the idea here is that as a believer, we're always going to have a constant war between the spirit and the flesh. So there's a wider application of this than what appears upon the surface. So then the Amalekites become a type of the flesh. Even as, like for example, Egypt becomes a type of the world in the Old Testament. So what's going on here? Well, I believe that God is telling us you can't make peace with the flesh. And we all know that, right? For those of us who who are committed to following through with the decision that we made for Jesus Christ, we know that there's a constant battle going on inside of us, right? And we're trying to overcome our flesh. We want to be all that God wants us to become. But the matter of fact is, is that it's always present with us. It's a constant war that's going on within us. So, again, I believe that what God is telling us here, you cannot make peace with the flesh. Now, the Bible tells us that the flesh is warring against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these two are contrary. They're in opposition. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 17. There's the cross-reference for that. And as Amalek sought to attack Israel at its weakest point, as they were a part of the Exodus moving toward the land of promise, so your flesh will be attacked at the weakest place. And again, it's a constant battle. It's a constant war that's going on inside of us. And by the way, think about this. In the book of Ephesians, in chapter 6, which is probably the greatest chapter anywhere in the Bible that addresses itself to Christian warfare, in chapter 6, in the book of Ephesians, in verse 11, we are told there, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the wilds of the devil. So we have to be completely geared up. We need to make sure that we have the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, our feet shod with the gospel of peace. If there's any area that we're not taking care of, that's where the flesh is going to attack us. So we need to put on the whole armor of God. We need to gird ourselves with every resource that God has made available to us. And if there's anything that you know we haven't protected, you can be sure that the flesh will attack us at that place. Now, We know that man and women are a trichotomy, what we refer to as a trichotomy. That is body, soul, and spirit. But the real you, the real me, is spirit. And that is eternal. The body is just a tent that I am temporarily dwelling in. The soul of mankind refers to that consciousness of man or the intellect of man. But the real you and me, that which will live forever, you know, after we leave this world, after we depart from this tabernacle of ours, this tent, this body of ours, is spirit. And that is eternal. And God's intention 
is that we be ruled by the Spirit. Because when the Spirit reigns, think about this now, that uh, indicates that man is in fellowship with God. And we have the mind of the Spirit. Now, I want you to think about that. If you've been born again of the Spirit of God, what a radical transformation has taken place within our lives. And the first thing that we become keenly aware of is this new fellowship that we have with God. And we have the mind of the Spirit. That is, we are interested in spiritual things. Now, that's absent in the person who hasn't been born again of the Spirit of God, right? Because the Bible tells us the natural man cannot discern the things of the Spirit of God, neither can he know them. So therefore, a person who's not born again of the Spirit of God is a dichotomy, only body and soul. He's not experiencing that third dimension, the most important dimension in our life's experience, and that is of the Spirit. And so when the body appetites control, you have the mind of the flesh. And therefore, you are living in an abnormal way. And I refer to it as an abnormal way because God never intended us to live that way. This is not the way that God intended man to live. But this is what happens when man twists the natural uses for what God created him and perverts them to other functions. And listen, when you give yourselves over to your body appetites, you become its victim and are ultimately brought into bondage. And so you shouldn't be ruled by your body, but rather by the Spirit of God. Now we'll talk about that whole process in just a moment. But let me give you an example of this. The sex drive. And, I, and it's not my intention to embarrass anybody here, but let's, let's use that because this is a very powerful uh, drive within each and every one of us. The sex drive. So here's the example. God created sex. It's not a dirty thing. In fact, it's a beautiful drive of the body. And God had created the sex drive for the perpetuation of the human race. It is also a way to communicate to our spouses, notice I said spouses, only our spouses, our deepest love and emotion. If we didn't have the sex drive, there wouldn't have been a Cain or an Abel, which was the first children of the first parents, Adam and Eve. And so our sex drive is something that has been ordained by God as a function of the human body. It is the beginning of the miracle of new life. But here's the problem. People start messing around, changing the natural use of sex, perverting its natural use. And therefore, they've gotten into all kinds of weird practices. But then those same people get trapped and their sex drive begins to rule them. In my father's house There's a place for me In my father's house Where I long to be That's all we have time for on this edition of In My Father's House. If you've missed any part of this message, you'll find it online at harvestnyc.org. You can also subscribe to the In My Father's House with Mike Venezio podcast. Just search for it on your favorite podcast platform. 
As we wrap up our time with you today, we'd like to let you know how you can connect with us. We want to hear from you. If you've been listening for months or even the first time today, let us know. Have you been blessed by a teaching here on In My Father's House? Have you been able to share what you've learned with someone else? We want to hear your story. It's such an encouragement and brings us great joy to know how this program is blessing our listeners. So please, let us know you've been tuning in. You can send us a message right from our website. Just go to harvestnyc.org and click on Contact. You'll find a form to fill out and we'll connect with you as soon as possible. You can also let us know you've been listening by sending an email to harvestnyc at verizon.net. Please feel free to share your prayer request too. We'd be honored to join you in seeking God's direction in your life. Again, just email harvestnyc at verizon.net. If you're listening to our broadcast and aren't in the Manhattan area, We'd like to invite you to join our weekly worship services live on our website. We stream our gatherings on Thursday at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday at 11 a.m. Find out more and connect at harvestnyc.org. That's all for today. Join Pastor Mike next time for another edition of In My Father's House. (laughs) 